what I do with income investing is try to find investments, and there are plenty of them that they're more likely to be high dividend stocks like utilities and and master limited partnerships and uh, you know things that are uh, that are more income focused and not growth focused. And then I also use a lot of high yield bonds and senior loans. Uh, and and I combine it with investing through closed end funds where you can typically buy at discounts. So you can get nine, ten percent, eight, nine, ten percent covered call funds or another one. You can get eight, nine, ten percent consistently year after year in return in real cash returns that you can reinvest and create your own growth. Welcome to Thoughtful Money. I'm its founder and your host, Adam Taggart. Now, okay, folks, in today's video, we're delivering on one of the most popular requests you've been asking of me, to produce a video on how to invest for income. We're joined today by Stephen Bavaria, author of the book, The Income Factory, An Investor's Guide to Consistent Lifetime Returns. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure, Adam. Thank you. Well, I, I really appreciate you jumping on relatively short notice. As I said, this is a very high interest topic amongst uh, this audience. I appreciate you um, helping demystify the world of income investing here for folks. So um, as we jump off of that and then get into your framework, you've got a very specific framework you call the income factory. Um, but before we get to that, though, we could just start at a very high level, which is why invest for income? You know, a lot of people are are buy a, a, a stock or a security because they they hope it's going to go up tomorrow. Um, Investing is a bit of a different strategy. Why invest in it? Well, actually, the two tie together very well, growth and income. If you go back to basic economics, and uh, there was a guy named John Burr Williams, an economist in the '30s, who wrote the book that is still the basis for investment theory. You know, around the world, the value of any investment, of any asset, really, when you come right down to it, is the discounted present value of all the cash flow, all the income that that asset is going to generate over the course of its life or the, or the investor's life, certainly. And we we don't always realize that that market values go up and down for all kinds of reasons. But the ultimate reason most of us are investing is because we're looking to the assets to ultimately generate an income for us. And if we invest in a way that grows our we can use we can use cash flow from the investments, reinvest it, and actually create our own growth. In fact, this is the basis for my for my own philosophy that I call the income factory, but I came to it through my own investing and realized that over time you actually can in, you can grow your your wealth faster and more consistently by concentrating on income than you typically can for most investors by looking at growth and focusing on on market value. And the reason for this is that they know for the last hundred years or so, equity on average has provided a return of nine or ten percent. If you can achieve a nine or ten percent growth on your investments over the course of your life, you're going to double and then redouble and redouble again the income or the the value of it 
about every eight years uh, at a 9% rate. Every, you know, it's the rule of 72. You divide the yield into 72 and it tells you how, how often it'll double and redouble itself. But most people do not achieve this kind of a return because they, they focus on market price. And of course, the media focuses on market price. So we're kind of brainwashed to think about market prices that go up and down. Whereas typically, 10 years later, 20 years later, people don't even remember the price at which they first bought a particular stock if they're still holding it or bond or whatever. Uh, but the income growth you know, compounds and, and, and continues. So for the typical person who invests in stocks, they then, they watch it go up and down because unlike bonds and other fixed income, you don't have steady, you know, growth due to dividend re compounding or income compounding. You have the ups and downs and the volatility. And if, you know, if you're smart, if, then, if we're all as wise as possible, we would just invest in index funds and forget about it for year after year after year, and we would do we would do fine. And Nobel Prizes have been won telling people this. But most of us, myself included, don't have the iron will required to sort of sit through volatility of all sorts. And with a typical stock portfolio, you make if it's an S&P 500, for example, you'd make one and a half percent in dividends and the rest of your nine or 10 percent equity growth is dependent on growth year after year. And you're not going to get it every year. So the years when you're getting minus 10 percent, hopefully to be made up by other years where you get plus 20 percent, let's say it's not exactly that mathematicians will be calling and complaining. But you know what I mean? The um, it's hard to just sit and wait and watch. So most people then try to hedge the volatility by buying things like long-term bonds and other fixed rate stuff where you get stability, but yes, stability, but over the long-term at a where, at a return of three or 4%. If it's a typical investment grade or government bond, you know, over the last 10 years, it's up to four or so now for a while. So, you put it all together and you're lucky if you you blend the portfolio with with these so-called stable assets that are like a rock pull it you know on a boat you know they gives it stability but it slows it down uh, and then your other equity portfolio that maybe will grow at 10% but you combine the two and maybe you've got 6 7% and then people try to time the market and that usually costs the money cuz they're sitting on the sidelines when the train starts to pull out of the station again and the and stocks take off. So it's very, very hard for a typical investor to just invest in equities and sit and watch it and let it grow over the long term, which is what they would need to do. So the the what I do with income investing is try to find investments, and there are plenty of them that they're more likely to be high dividend stocks like utilities and, and master limited partnerships and uh, you know, things that are uh, that are more income focused and not growth focused. And then I also use a lot of high yield bonds and senior loans. Uh, and, and I combine it with investing through closed end funds where you can typically buy at discounts. So you can get nine, 10 percent, eight, nine, 10 percent covered call funds or another one. You can get eight, nine, 10 percent consistently year after year in return in 
real cash returns that you can reinvest and create your own growth. And you're not necessarily growing the, the market value, which may move all over the place, but you're not paying attention to it. You're, you're looking at your income, your cash income, which is growing and compounding. If you're in a growth mode, now, if you're a retiree, you may be taking some of this out and living on it and just reinvesting parts of it. And we'll talk about that later, but uh, you can therefore create your own growth, reinvest. And when markets are down, this is the, this is a psychological thing as well as a financial thing. It, it's easier to sleep at night. If you know your income is growing steadily, regardless of what the market prices are doing. And when market prices are down, you're reinvesting at even lower prices and higher yields. So you're, you're growing your income faster, even during periods when the, when the market prices are down, like in 2022, I grew my income at about 11%. My portfolio of, I invest in funds primarily, closed end funds and ETFs mostly because I like the diversification. I want professionals managing my money and not picking, I would never want to pick, try to pick individual bonds or loans myself, but I let professionals do it. And so I've got a portfolio of funds invested in all this. And some of those funds were down on in paper value during in 2022, for example, but they were cranking out their cranking out their uh, income at a faster rate than ever, you know, at a higher yield than ever. And I was reinvesting. So I've been consistently growing my income at a nine, 10, 11% rate for as long as I've been doing this, even though the, you know, the value of it in terms of market value, it, you know, bounces around, but I don't pay much attention. And when I started writing about this, uh, taking this approach on Seeking Alpha primarily, I was called a heretic. I had people saying, you can't do that. You've got to have growth. And I, I said, no, math is math. If you make 10% yields and 0% growth and 0% yields and 10% growth and you compound it, it's, you're going to end up at exactly the same place. And I had to you know, prove that on Excel spreadsheets and stick them in my book and on articles. And finally, now I've got thousands of followers who tell me, gee, I'm sleeping better at night. You've changed my life. I've never thought of income investing as it may not be sexy, but it sure works. That's a long-winded answer, but there you go. No, it's a great answer. And uh, look, I think there's a lot of people watching who you probably just got their attention first off with just the the nine to ten percent uh, annual average returns, um, but also the fact that uh, you know in, in income generating assets tend to have substantially lower risk uh, than mm. a lot of growth assets, and so to be able to earn that attractive a rate, uh, you know, with the relative safety of fixed income, I'm sure folks are watching pretty intently right now. Um, so I'm really looking forward to getting into this discussion. Um, you mentioned a couple of, of asset classes there that that folks might not be super familiar with. So hopefully at some point um, we can just talk briefly about uh, you know what they are so they know how to go uh, learn more about them uh, after this video. Um, let, let me ask you this first. Um, so uh, you, you said a, a lot of people, which is very true, um, you know, we, we I would say the average retail investor tends to invest more in stocks than in fixed income. Um, fixed income instruments are a little mathy that scares people. Also, what you sort of tend to hear 
uh, on the, the regular financial media, you tend to hear much more about the equity side of things. Um, and I think that's just because it's, it's, it's more interesting. It's to use your term, it's a little more sexy. Um, and, you know, everybody loves a story like, uh, in NVIDIA or like the meme stocks when they were running about how riches can be made overnight. Um, but a lot of that is, 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 uh, it's riskier, but but um, there's a there's a, a line I think that's been really blurred over the past decade or more between investing and speculating, um, and uh, we have especially post the the 2008 global financial crisis, we enter this era where uh, financial markets, but particularly the equity side, um, was supported and juiced by a lot of. Uh, central planner stimulus. Uh, and you had a lot of years where the market just had gain after gain after gain after gain. And, and the, the mantra was buy the dips. You've got the Fed put, you know, the, the Fed's got your back here. Uh, and as part of that program, it drove uh, interest rates down to zero practically. And uh, that made it really hard on the fixed income side to generate an attractive return, uh, at least from a lot of people's perspectives. Um, now, what's different about the era we're in now is you actually have yields up at a place where they're somewhat meaningful again. In fact, I think uh, treasuries are now delivering a real return, which hasn't happened in a long time. <laughs> so is this now an even better environment uh, for those that want to build an income factory? I'd say probably yes, although... It's always been a, perhaps a better environment than people would have thought if they were just looking at fixed income the way the media and others describe it. It's, it's very important to understand that not all fixed income is the same. And the bets we're taking, you know, if you will, the, the, when we invest in different parts of the fixed income market, we're taking very different bets where you know we're we're investing in in a different set of of possibilities and probabilities and expectations the typical fixed income commentator commentary say on cnbc doesn't even talk about the kind of fixed income i would invest in they they're talking about the treasury market the long term bond investment grade bond market these are markets where the, you've got fixed rates you're going out 10, 20, even 30 years on treasuries, you're basically betting on interest rate movements and you're not being paid very much to take those bets because you have virtually, from a statistical point of view, you have hardly any defaults in the investment grade sector, especially the higher end of it. And of course, in the treasury, we don't know what's going to happen to our government bonds, you know, our debt, you know, years from now. But as long as we're, as long as it's denominated in U.S. dollars that they can create more of, you're not going to have defaults by the U.S. government in, you know, in any foreseeable future. So, you're really betting on interest rates. I'm talking about taking investing in credit. Now, when you're investing in credit, you're being paid real returns. You're getting much higher yields because you're taking real risk, and you know, high yield bonds and, and senior loans, which are asset classes quite, you know, that are totally available to retail investors through the closed end fund market, especially, you can get not, currently 9, 10, 11% returns, yields, uh, I should say yields 
on these asset classes because you're you are taking real credit risk and but you're being well paid for it and credit risk here, here's something most people don't understand high yield bonds which basically started with michael milken and you know way back in the in the 80s and got denominated they got called junk you know they're called junk bonds because they're they're from non-investment grade companies the average there's so many people say oh i would never touch a junk bond it's so scary and risky many of those people in fact most of them probably already hold stock in mid cap funds and small cap funds that's issued by these same companies who issue high yield bonds now the non-investment grade companies most companies that we've ever seen are non-investment grade and the stock issued by these companies that is bought universally by by uh investors who have highly diversified stock portfolios small caps mid caps is all below on the balance sheet the debt that these investors say oh i'd never buy that that's high yield bond well unless those high yield bonds are paid off the stock that many of those investors already own is worthless because it's you know if the company goes bust you're you're not going to get anything back as a stockholder but if you're a bondholder or especially a a secured senior loan holder and senior loans are a big investment a big asset class i'm i'm i like you're going to probably lose on a high yield bond you'll have a recovery of maybe 40% so you'll lose 60% on a senior loan you'll have a recovery of 60 or 70% so you lose 30% so even in a normal year when when uh, defaults are say 2% if they're that high uh on these on on non investment grade companies you might lose half of that you might lose 1% you know 50 if you lose 50% and you've had defaults on 2% of your portfolio, then your loss will be half of that, 1%, 50% times 2%. So, and then even in a recession, you might have 5% defaults. So you lose half of that, that's 2.5%, which you're earning 10%. So 2.5% might reduce your earnings that year to seven, but it won't even touch your principal. You know, so the the there's a lot more security and predictability in the credit markets the real credit markets where you get paid for taking credit risk than there is in any equity market and this is why i find uh once i start explaining to people what you're really betting on and what the you know what the risks are it it's a, it makes a lot more sense to them and they say wow i never knew that you know and then they i have a lot of readers and and members of my group that just they tell me a couple of years later, wow, this is great. I never, never knew you could invest like this and get, you know, these kinds of returns and, and sleep at night. Okay, great. Um, you, uh, you, you fast forwarded to a question I was going to ask um, around some of the, uh, the debt instruments that are lower on the seniority ladder. Um, you, you just answered that question, which is great. And I think uh -oh. that is a great reframing in people's mind is, Hey, if you're running a stock, you know, uh, and in most companies, like you said, unless it's a real big blue chip company, uh, it's probably not an investment grade company. Uh, and if that company gets into trouble, your stock's going to take a much bigger loss than than whatever variety of debt you have. Because yeah. the debt is higher on the seniority list than the equity. May I make one little point, too? That Absolutely. I, I like to think about this is 
when you get into credit investing and and a good 50% or more of my portfolio and my models is in credit investing and it, and in part of the equity that we invest in is the equity of business development corporations which in fact all they do is make credit so even i call i consider that part of credit as well but i think of it as if you went to a horse race you went to a racetrack if you could bet on a, the whole field of horses to just make it around the track and finish the race that's what credit investing is. You're just betting on companies to not go bust, to stay alive. And, you know, even if they're, even if they don't do well, even if their stock tanks, as long as the management keeps the company alive and, you know, the horse makes it around the track, you're going to do fine. You're going to get paid. When you go, when you bet on stocks, it's like betting on, you know, a horse to win place or show. It's got to do well. It's got to not only survive and finish the race, it's got to increase its earnings and its stock price. So it's a very different bet. So unless you're getting paid a lot more to buy the equity, you're better off just taking the 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 credit bet. That is a great analogy. So, you know, a a a bond, a credit instrument, it, it it's contract. Right. It basically says, hey, if I'm still around by time X, I will have paid you this along the way. And then we give you your principal back. Right. So to your point, that horse just even, needs to finish the race. Even if I've even if the company's really run into problems, laid off half its people. I've worked for companies that have had to do that, but they have to meet their contracts and pay their debts or they're gone. And let's be honest, the CEOs of companies and other people. I wrote a book called Too Greedy for Adam Smith about CEO pay and how it's out of control. But CEOs and the management, other management of these companies have enormous skin in the game to do whatever they have to to muddle through and keep their companies alive. And that's really, when you think of corporate America that way, even in the worst recessions, you've got most managements have just got enormous skin in the game to kind of get their debt holders paid, no matter what happens to their stockholders. And that's what All I'm right. betting. So, so yeah, so here you're basically saying, look, um, you know, investing in this type of world, you, you've got the system pulling for you. This, the system's that's own right. self-interest is, is trying that's to help right. you out here. Um, all right, well, look, um, I, I think we've laid a lot of good groundwork here. Let's, let's perhaps transition to, um, in just a second, because I got one more question I want to shoehorn in first. But let's transition to your framework here of the income factory. Uh, what exactly is it? How does one build it? And then maybe what are some of the elements that people could could you know put together to create their own income factory? Um, very quickly, um, I should have asked this earlier, but um, uh, how how should an income strategy the need to uh, like, like basically who should be investing for income? Um, is it is it just as relevant for a 23 year old as it is for a 67 year old? Or obviously, do, do does age and personal situation come into play here? Well, here again, it, it has to do with uh, psychology and what your personal comfort level is. And of course, I know a lot more now 50 years later than I did when I was in my 20s. But um, ideally, if you were a 20 year old, you'd you'd set aside and most people can do this if they're in a company where they have a 401k or something, you'd set aside a certain amount of money. 
and you'd invest it mostly in equities, frankly, although a lot of people are encouraged, oh yeah, put a portion in bonds. Well, they're just slowing their, they're, they're slowing it down. If you're in for the long, long term, they'd, you'd be better off just investing your entire 401k in equities and then forgetting about it. You know, Rip Van Winkle would have been a great investor if he had invested in, you know, the S&P 500 or whatever first and then forgotten about Sorry, it. Sorry to interject, but a, a, a funny uh, data point on that is apparently I've heard that uh, uh, people who work at big brokerages, they often say the best performing accounts are those for people who have died and the family <laughs> hasn't hasn't come and claimed the the assets right. and they just or, or they don't make any changes and so they tend to do the that best makes, over time that's right now i'm not recommending death as a strategy but <laughs> you're right um uh that makes a lot of sense the the only problem with that is and is in fact i would not recommend if somebody has the guts uh, the uh you know the wherewithal and personal confidence to do that and to just sit on it and not worry about it, I would not recommend that they take an income factory approach. But for those of us, and I'm one of them, who frankly, during the periods where it's down and you're kind of worrying, gee, I hope it's coming back. I hope this isn't the 1930s again and we're in for a 10-year or longer depression here and we need a war to get us out of it. You know, for somebody who's um, unable or or finds it, uncomfortable to sit and just watch their equity investments go up and down, even though they know they're not going to need to touch the money for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. The income factory, by allowing them to create their own growth, by investing in a pool of assets, uh, you know, you need wide diversification, but a pool of assets that's going to provide a steady 8%, 9%, 10%, Sometimes, like the last couple of years, we've gotten 11%, but I don't expect 11% year after year. But even if I get 8 or 9% consistently, I'm pretty happy then, regardless of what the price does in the interim, because I'm compounding and growing the income. And that 27-year-old, that's what they really, even if they don't fully realize it, that's what they really need 40 years later, their portfolio to be providing an income that they can easily live on, you know, in retirement or whatever they're planning to do at that point. So um, either approach works, but it's nice to have the alternative because if you didn't have an income factory alternative, then your alternative might be to like start taking money out of the market at difficult times. So you sleep better, putting it in the sidelines, investing in low return, long-term bonds. And then all you're doing is decreasing your potential return, both in the short term and often in the long term, if you've tied yourself into long term, you know, low return assets. Yeah. So we we interview, um, well, I mean, a lot of experienced investors who share your, your sentiment that that we as humans can be our own worst enemies here at times in the stock market. And I've interviewed a number of, of behavioral economists who who have the science, you know, the, the behavioral science that goes into all of that. Um, and what I really like about your approach is uh, you just say, look, it's just math, right? You're just putting the power power of math in your corner here so that if, mm. if you can not get too emotionally charged and, and tinker with it and screw things up, the math should see you through in the long run. That's right. And, and it's especially comforting during those periods 
and 2022 was the most recent, you know, when stocks were universally down. And if you were only making a one and a half percent dividend on your S&P 500 or whatever, but seeing the rest of it tank to be to instead be earning your nine, 10 percent and seeing it reinvested an even higher yield than it had been a year ago. I'll tell you, it really <laughs> you feel an awful lot more comfortable um, you know, and sanguine about your investment strategy than you would if if it was if you if all you saw was the downside. All right, very un very understandable. So I think we've whetted people's interest enough here. So let's get to the meat of the discussion here. So tell us what is an income factory and, and how do you construct one? Well, um, an income factory, I mean, at a high level definition, an income factory would be a portfolio that you've invested in various assets that generate high current yields on a regular basis, uh, but where you're not necessarily expecting uh, growth. I mean, ideally, if you had, if you, if you bought something that was earning you 10% forever, a portfolio, let's say, that would generate 10 and didn't grow at all, you and you were able to compound it, or even if you were retired and you took five or 6% of it out, but you left 4% in to continue growing, because even if you're 70, you may live to 90 and you want to make sure you don't you know, outlive your money, that would be a, an equally um, good alternative. So so you start at the high level by saying, okay, I'm committed to earning, creating most of my growth um, through, through current yields. So that's at a high level. So then step two is you say, okay, what are the asset classes that I can consider? I think this is where you'd like to go now, right? What are the asset classes we should consider that would meet this requirement? And then how do we, what would be a root? What would be a portfolio that would 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 contain those? And I'd say, in general, they would be they would be the kind of credit assets I already mentioned. You know, like uh, there are a lot of senior loan funds uh, in the, especially in the closed end fund world. I like the closed end fund world because if you're careful when you buy, you can often buy at discounts, so you end up buying uh, a fund at a eight or 10% discount to its net asset value. So you actually, you get a bunch of assets that are earning you, that are earning 8% uh, or 9% yields, but because you've only paid 90% of their market price, uh, because you got them at a discount, you're actually, they're actually generating a higher yield for you. So you have senior loan funds uh, uh, and they're run, you want to, you want to buy funds run by real professional organizations. There are senior loan funds run by Ares and Apollo and Blackstone and BlackRock and Invesco. Uh, just, you know, give you an example. Uh, Blackstone is another one. I mean, these are companies I know because I spent years and years in banking. And, and when I was at Standard & Poor's, I developed the first ratings that were ever assigned to corporate loans. Corporate loans had never been rated before. So it's an area I, I that's why I'm into got into this because I'm familiar with this these kinds of assets. So senior loans and then the high yield bonds I mentioned. And again, 
you've got a lot of high yield bond funds. They're earning in the they're yielding in the eight nine uh, percent. Some of them higher areas, and you want to again buy funds that are run by really solid organizations that you know know this well. Pimco, of course, uh, is well known for its fixed assets, although they're they're not so much into the corporate areas they are into the more standard um, uh, bond areas. But you've got KKR and again, Aries and uh, Credit Suisse, uh, oh, you know, BlackRock again, uh, and some of the insurance companies like Bearings, which is owned by Mass Mutual, is probably the best, uh, has one of the best records out there. It's high yield bond funds. Uh, I'll give you a couple MCI and MPV if anybody wants to check out, but they, they've been at the top of the list for years in terms of their total return as high yield bond funds. And what, what makes some of these, wh why it's important to have really great management teams uh, run by organizations that have been around a long time is that a lot of these funds, uh, they have great relationships with private equity firms. So, even if they're lending in the middle market corporate area, they they they're lending to companies that are owned by other big firms that have a lot of skin in the game. So if you do run into credit problems, you've got an owner who's willing to work with you to try to prevent losses. So it really, you know, it there's a lot of sort of sophisticated uh, people, you know, organizations that are running these funds. And as retail investors, we can sort of tag onto their to their expertise and benefit from it. So how you so, sorry, sorry, sorry you to for, just for one sec, Stephen. So um, yeah. so just to clarify for folks, so it sounds like you're saying, look, don't don't just pick an index fund, right? Pick, pick a fund that is actively managed by yes. one of these you know professional managers, um, and and a lot of the names that you've mentioned here. Um, I'll say a lot of retail investors don't have a lot of love for these guys because they kind of look at them as the the, the guys that that are dominating the system and 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 slanting the playing field to their advantage and whatnot. But but I think what you're saying is is one these guys are smart. They, hmm. they, they they're winning the financial arms race where they've got they've amassed you know a huge army of quantitative analysts and 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 other sorts of advantages. And they have the relationships, so they can kind of, you know, they they can kind of play a little bit unfairly to their advantage, and and you can use that advantage to your advantage as the small guy here by letting them be the guys who who captain your your uh, actively managed fund here. That's an interesting way to uh, to look at it. Um, you don't have to agree with it, but no, I'm not. I don't think of them as playing unfairly. But you're absolutely right. People who do things for a living and are closer to it are more likely to have the connections and the, the knowledge. And I'm not talking about inside information or anything like that, but they're just, they know how the game is played and they've been doing it uh, for years. And, and some of the top rated funds are in fact run by these people. Like I mentioned MCI MPV because in in the whole in what used to be called the private placement market, I don't know. If, maybe you're hearing a lot lately about the so-called private credit market. 
which a lot of the big names in finance and investing are talking about. It's like they've just discovered private credit in the last year or so and have been writing articles and everything about it. But private credit has been going on for generations. When I was a journalist for a brief period during my kind of midlife career switching, I used to write about the private placement market and some of these insurance companies like the Prudential, Mass Mutual, um, they were, they were, they they dominated the the field in private placements, which were non-public debt. Like corporate, they corporations would come to them and they would float a bond issue for them and sell it to other insurance companies, and this has turned into the private so-called private credit market. And now you have lots of big investors involved in it, but these guys are pros, and uh, yeah, I like invest. I like letting pros run my run my money. I wouldn't dare go out and try to buy individual high yield bonds from individual high yield companies, but having Aries and Prudential and Mass Mutual and other people making decisions for me and having highly diversified portfolios like that, that I can buy at discounts in the closed end fund market. Yeah, I, I really like that. <laughs> All right, great. So I'm sorry, I interrupted you. So we've gone through- No, no, I'm glad funds. you did. High yield bond funds. What else would you yeah. put in there? Well, then you've got, you know, they're real estate. Now, real estate's really in the dumper right dumpster right now, but uh there it seems to be turning around. Real estate has been a for for generations has been a a good provider of of steady, you know, higher yielding um returns. Uh you don't get the growth, but you get, you know, you get uh, you get the, the cash flows. Yeah. And so there are, you know, there are real estate funds that one can look at. Cohen and Steers is a big is a big uh, company that uh, runs uh, closed end funds. They have a lot of real estate funds that have been around for ages that have, have done well. Um, you know, so I would say the real estate, there are lots of REITs around, but then there are funds that buy REITs. So um but real estate definitely would be something you might want to include. Some, um, some others, uh, you know, utilities uh, and infrastructure is another uh, is another asset class that, while they're while they're stocks, they tend to pay higher dividends. They're often they're regulated, or well, now with infrastructure companies. Uh, Sometimes they own regulated utilities. Sometimes they own toll roads. They own all kinds of things that generate regular income. And if you, again, if you buy these in uh, in the closed-end fund world, uh, you've got some that have just been around for ages and pay nice steady uh, dividends in the 8% and larger. Uh, but some of the, the really solid ones like the... Um, there's one called Reeves Utility Income Fund. You, it's a symbol as UTG. That's been a, it's been an investor favorite for, uh, you know, for years. And it real solid, um, and uh, it pays a yield of about uh, eight eight and a half percent. And it's increased its dividend about twelve times in the last twenty years or so. Okay, uh, and and is the theme pretty consistent amongst each of these asset classes where you're saying, um, you know, find ideally a 
closed-end fund that's professionally managed. If you're buying a closed-end fund, look to try to buy it at a discount. But but again, more importantly, right. f- find a professional manager with a good track record in this oh, space. Yes. Yeah. yeah, you want funds with really good track records that have been around a while. And then uh, the other thing is, yeah, you're looking for investments that, yeah, they may grow over time, but you're mo- but you're mostly looking at a dividend that if that's all you got, you'd probably be pretty happy most years to just get that and reinvest it. And you're going to end up with a portfolio that maybe has an average return of nine to 10% in terms of yield, but you'll have some superstars in it that are earning in the mid teens, yielding in the mid teens, and you'll have others that are, and we haven't gotten to those yet, but we will. And you have others that are, you know, yielding in the seven, eight, nine percent. And you mix them all together, well diversified, and you haven't, you know, and you got your equity return in yield that you can compound as long as you want to <laughs> uh, to get that long that equity growth. And, and I'm I'm probably jumping the gun here again. I don't want to interrupt your your flow here, but um, uh, it seems to me that sort of you can you can project with confidence, uh, you can probably project with more confidence what you're gonna end up with over a, a period of time, 10, 20, 30 years or so, because you're, you're, you're basically saying, all right, I'm putting my principal in, it's gonna grow at X, uh, I'm gonna reinvest the X right, every mm-hmm. year so that I, can, I can calculate that compounding. And then I'm gonna hopefully contribute, you know, just from my own savings, a certain amount every year, so I can put that into the equation. And then you put all that into Excel and you pretty much can say, all right, I, in 30 years, I, I should have this amount and barring something crazy. That That's right. And um, and bar, the something crazies that you are not including, I mean, when you say barring it, you still, you'll still think of them, but the, you can't always project. I mean, interest rate levels, which are driven by inflation rates as well, they're going to change over time. And if you think about what your return on a credit investment is, you've got a base rate that's a kind of interest-free rate, which was zero, you know, over much of the last 15 years. But now is something more real, more like 3%, 4%, whatever, you know, short-term government uh, bill rates are. And then to that, you add your credit risk. So some of these same assets that are now earning us 10 or 11% in yield, we're probably only yielding six and 7% 10 years ago because they were on a base rate that was much lower. So over time, you know, if we really got inflation down to zero again, and uh, I mean, it's, it's quite likely that we might only earn seven or 8% at, and reinvest and compound that at certain points in the future. But we'd probably be pretty happy with that because the economy would be, I mean, there'd be a lot of different things going on. With When you have lower interest rates for longer, uh, then you're discounting the future value of the cash flows at a lower discount rate. So they're actually going to then be valued more by a market. Now, I don't know anyone who expects interest rates to go down. The r- level of interest rates we're at right now is actually, while it seems high to many people, is about the average sort of rates we've had for the last 50 to 75 years for those who are old enough to kind of remember back. So I think most, you know, most people I know don't expect rates to drop 
all that much, even if even when they finally start to go down. Now to kind of continue on, uh, there are some other asset classes that are very attractive. There's there's a specific one. Well, you have the business development company. I mentioned those earlier. BDCs, which many of your investors are probably already familiar with, are are specialized companies that invest in, for the most part, middle market corporates. And that's all they do. Uh, and they are like little mini banks, except they're far less risky in many ways than banks. They're not nearly as 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 uh, leverage, they can only leverage themselves about, I think, about two to one max. And instead of relying on deposits that can walk out the door in a bank run, they 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 have long term liabilities. Uh, that you know, so they they have a a liability side of their balance sheet that's far more fixed and under their control, and that they can match to their asset side better. So BDCs they've had a terrific run over the past year or so, but they, um, the, I, I, I rely on them and I like them a lot as an asset class. And there are actually, there are some ETFs that are, that are uh, available. There's one called, um, well, Putnam, Putnam up in Boston, Putnam BDC with the PBDC is the symbol was just launched last year and it's an actively managed ETF that invests in BDC. So that's one I like. I like the idea of an actively managed ETF. And then there's a there's another ETF uh, run by, uh, it's called BIZD, the Van Eck BDC ETF, but it's BIZD. And it's got a very good record but it's and it's been around much longer. But it's interesting how PBDC, the actively managed BDC, uh, beat BIZD, which is more of a an index type of BDC fund, by about three percentage points over the past year. They both did very well. Like BIZD had a total return of twenty seven percent for the past year, but PBDC beat it with thirty percent. So. Last year was a very good year for credit investing generally and for BDCs. But I, I really like BDCs because they're actively managed companies. They're kind of like mini banks. And uh, I think they're going to be around, you know, doing what they do, cranking out 9, 10, 11% yields, certainly in the, C in the closed end fund sort of uh, wrapper uh, for, for a long time. And then there's also, I don't know if any of your readers, uh, listeners, watchers, viewers <laughs> are familiar with CLOs, uh, collateralized loan obligations, but these are securitized vehicles that were only open to institutional investors for many, many years where they would take senior corporate loans, secured corporate loans, and securitize them, put them into a, a pool uh, this started about 30 some years ago when senior loans were first corporate loans were first becoming traded outside of the banking world and CLOs, these collateralized loan obligations are leveraged pools of senior loans. So, so the equity in them and the debt, they, they have different tranches of debt, 
have been very popular as uh, a number of retail funds have come out in the last 10 years to allow retail investors to invest in these. Um, and they've been, I mean, they're not for the faint hearted. I, I, I've written articles explaining what they are, um, but uh, they, they've, as a small portion of one's portfolio, the, I mean, a couple of the funds are now generating yields are that they're fully covering with their current in current cash flow of 16 17 18 percent and um and then there are some other ones that that buy clo debt which is less risky than clo equity and even some of them are earning and paying yields in the 14 15 percent range so clos are another are another asset class worth including in a small amount, you know, in a diversified income factory. And then you've got um, covered call funds, which you may be familiar with, which are, um, you know, they're equity funds. Eaton Vance is big and, and highly regarded in the covered call area and has a, a whole bunch of closed end funds uh, that, uh, that they run, but covered call funds are kind of an interesting investment to include as well, because they, they invest in stocks, some of the same stocks that growth stock funds invest in, but then they sell uh, calls, covered calls. So they're kind of selling off a portion of the potential income. If the, if, if you knew the stocks were going to go up and you were positive of that, you'd never sell a covered call on it. But if you don't know that for sure, it's a nice way to convert some of to to increase the regular income on the fund, uh, so that uh, you're you're trading off potential potential growth for a steady income. So covered call funds, and and many of these generate nice steady yields of seven eight percent, and they've been doing it for years. They're a nice uh, they're a nice component of an income factory as well. So we've got senior loans, oh, right. real estate, high yield bonds, um, and then there are plain old equity funds that, uh, especially in the closed end fund world, there are a lot of equity funds that are kind of growth type funds, but they they pay out their growth as they earn it, as they as they make capital gains, they actually pay it out. So they have much higher yields than a typical um, sort of index fund would have. There are quite a few of those uh, in the uh, that are in the closed end fund world. Some of you want some names? We uh, yeah, let's get, let's that have been Yeah, like the Adams Diversified Equity Fund (ADX) has been around for years, generating you know solid returns. And um, you've got Liberty All Star Growth, which is another oldie but goodie in the closed end fund world, you know, in a lot of pretty conservative portfolios, I would guess it's um, ASG. And then you've got uh, Charlie Royce, people may know he's well, probably in his 80s now, but the Royce Value Trust, uh, the Royce Microcap Trust, they've been around for years, um, earning really solid you know, uh, returns, uh, they're, they're more, they're growth funds, more likely to be mid cap. And, um, but they pay out nice dividend that, you know, they convert their growth 
their capital gains into a steady income. They know that closed-end fund investors are typically more interested in getting their money out regularly as, as dividends than in seeing it just, they'd rather do the growing themselves by compounding than let, you know, with a typical growth stock, the stock just does the growth internally and pays you 1% or whatever. All right. So, so sorry, to, sorry to be repetitive here, but yeah. pretty much in every asset class you've mentioned so far, it, the strategy is the same. You typically buy closed end funds, ideally try to buy them at a discount if you can, but look That's for right. a good senior manager with the long track record. So even here on the equity funds, same deal, closed end funds. Absolutely. That's right. This is why, you know, funds, I don't claim to be a great stock picker. You know, I'm good at theory and I, I, I call, I think of myself as a portfolio manager more than a individual stock analyst. That's why I like to, I spend my time finding funds run by people who know a lot more than I do and have been doing it a long time and it works so far. Great. I mean, what I kind of take from your approach here is, is uh, you're leveraging um, the uh, sort of safety of the contract uh, with these instruments, you're leveraging math, having a strong yep. sense of what you're going to get back and how it's going to compound, and you're leveraging expertise uh, and competitive advantage by going after the or, or, or letting the active management be done by the really big successful guys. That's right. Which which is why, for people willing to, you know, do enough research, which might mean, and I'm not just trying to promote my own stuff, but I mean. I've spent a lot of years writing about this, doing articles on on seeking alpha about it. And so most of the people that are that are followers of mine or members of my investment service are smart retail investors, but who do it themselves. But what they're doing is pretty it you don't need the level of expertise to pick funds that you do to pick individual stocks or bonds. And so that's what I try to do is give people, I try to keep it as simple as I can. And that's why we stick to funds and funds run by pros. Okay. Um, before I get to my next questions, were there any other um, major asset classes here you'd want to mention? Um, no, I think we got the the basic, the basic ones. Uh, no, that would be about right. Uh, I mean, we covered stocks, bonds, major corporate debt instruments, and some special things like BDCs and CLOs. All and right. Well, I, I really appreciate you mentioning, you know, certain um, fund companies that folks can look into. You even gave some some tickers uh, along the way. Just want to underscore for folks, um, both for Stephen's uh, sake and mine. You know, none of this is personal financial advice. Uh, oh, these God. are just things to go consider. I'm going to right. make my pitch in a little bit, my standard pitch for why most people, uh, unless you're experienced DIY, um, should work under the guidance of a, of a good professional financial advisor and or follow somebody like Stephen, who has a, you know, a, 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 a service that, you know, shows you all the analysis and lets you actually do the work but, on your own. But um, but yes, none of this is personal financial advice. No, and I would add anything I write. And any any of my service, I, I make a point of saying what I'm doing is sharing my own opinions of what I do and how I invest and what works for me so far. But there's no 
no assurance it's going to keep working for me or or guarantees that you know any we're we're all in this together kind of helping each other but none of us are professionals and certainly there are no guarantees <laughs> okay um well look um can you talk for a bit about the um uh just differentiate for our viewers the the accumulation phase of the income mm. factory right which is that hey like i'm i'm in my early 50s right i'm i'm going to be building the factory i'm going to be putting money into it hopefully for a good while not mm. taking money out um so contrast that versus the withdrawal phase um how, how does the how does the factory work when people start taking you know a partial or or total re annual returns out Okay, that's a good question, and I get it a lot. When you think about total return on any investment, your total return is the amount of cash you collect, say in any period, say in a year, it's the amount of cash you collect from that investment and the amount by which that investment goes up or down. Now, at any age, you have a choice at the end of any year what to do with that total return. Now, if the total return is mostly in the form of capital growth, then you can uh, you always have the option of selling some of the uh, some of your assets, taking some of the growth and harvesting it and collecting it for whatever you need it for to build build a house, buy a car, whatever, send your kids to college. Now, once you get into a retirement phase, that really doesn't change. It's just that most retirees have more of a need. You know, when you're in your a cumulative phase from age 25 to 55 or 60 or 65, you've still got the choice each year. Do I need to take money out for some reason or another? But you're mostly, you're right, going to leave it in. If you want it to grow, you'll mostly leave it in. And if it's in an IRA or something, you'll definitely want to leave it in. When you become, once you're retired, people who have traditional investment uh strategies almost have to start selling assets because they're only going to get one and a half or two percent in dividend payments so they have to start selling off some of their growth hopefully not all of it though if you've got an income factory and you're getting it all in the form of income then your choice becomes how much do i want to keep of that income and how much do i want to reinvest it so if you're if, if you've got a traditional portfolio and you're earning on average 10% a year, some years you won't earn any of that, you have no choice but to sell off some of your assets each year if you need it to live on, uh, with whether you've earned you know a capital gain or not. With an income factory, if you're earning 10% or whatever in yield, it's your choice. Uh, they they generally say you shouldn't take out more than what, five, six percent or so, seven percent, and they ought to keep the rest in and let it grow. I mean, that's going to depend on your outlook, how much, you know, other income you have, all, all that stuff. But I'd say the average person 65 or 70 should still be thinking of themselves as in an accumulative phase, even if they're taking out five percent or so because you might live to 90. I mean, my grandparents and my father lived to 96. I'm in my 70s, but I'm still thinking growth because I want to have, you know, I want to at least prepare for being around 20 more years, even if I'm not lucky enough to make it. So, I mean, so seriously, this is 
a question that doesn't really change that much just because you go from being 50 to 60 to 70. It's more, but if you do have an income factory where it's all coming in in cash, it's a much easier decision about, because you've, you're used to reinvesting it anyway. Now it's just a question of, well, maybe each year I'll cut back the amount I reinvest by a little bit and keep it. And how much you keep will depend on, on what your current needs are, you know, as a retiree, if you're all living right. solely on that, you know what I mean? So it, it it's very much a, uh, it's a lot easier with an income factory to make the decision because you, you, you always have cash that's coming in. You don't have to sell stocks that might be down. Right, right. It, it, it seems to me rather than kind of building a nest egg that you're, you're going to then withdraw, draw down in your twilight years, you're building a pension plan. That's right. Yeah, that is paying you an annual salary and then you can just determine how much of that you want to take and how much of it you want to reinvest but even if you take all of it you're not actually dipping into your principal there that's the, that's the critical point and that's why it's so important uh to look at the source of a fund's yield if it's paying you a yield every year and it's paying it from interest that it what they call net investment income in the fund world if if you're collecting net investment income, which means the interest or dividends the fund receives, and it's not dipping into its own capital gains in order to pay you that yield, then it, you can be a lot more comfortable spending more of that yield and not reinvesting it than if it were from a stock fund where they're dipping, they're selling you, you know, they're eating their seed corn, so to speak, to pay you a dividend because they didn't have the capital gains that year to cover it. That's a, I've written a lot about that. And that that's a real that's a real issue. As people get closer to retirement, it makes more sense to have a, an income factory approach because you're more likely to have a, a portfolio that generates cash flow each year, even if its paper value is going up or down, uh, because you won't have to sell any of those assets and sell it at those lower paper values. And let's let's talk about the paper values for a second. Um, so you, you've done a good job of of laying out the benefits of the income factory. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on any risks that folks would need to keep in mind. And, and, and one that comes into my mind, and maybe it's a real risk, maybe it's not, you can correct me, is um, uh, I, let's say I was assembling an income factory myself or I was I was picking the individual uh, bonds to go in it, the individual assets to go in it, um, I would have the guarantee that if I held them to maturity, no matter what happened along the way with prices, I'd get my principal back, right? Um, mm -hmm. Some of these ETFs don't, I, I presume they, they don't necessarily give you that guarantee. If you were to sell the ETF, you're just selling it, whatever the market price of the ETF is right. at that given moment, right? So what kind of risk is there that, yes, it's, it's churning off the income you want over time, um, but you might you might have a life event or or whatever where you need to to start selling the principal and and it's substantially lower than you'd like it to be thirty years down the road um, versus that guaranteed principal return. How how big of a factor is that in, in your outlook here? That's always going to be a factor, whether you've got a stock portfolio or a fixed income income factory type. Mm -hmm portfolio, the market 
cannot will always can always react negatively uh as it has um in the last few years there have been years where i mean in my in my own personal portfolio it's actually right at a break even point right now which i'm delighted at because i've been collecting 10 and 11% yields for years on it but there was a time when it was way down a, a couple of years ago in paper value but it was continuing to crank out the uh the income and i'd say if somebody thinks they're likely to have a life event and some aren't you can't project everything but if you know your kids are going to college in so many years or you're going to, you're saving up to buy a house or something those kinds of things you should probably set aside a portion of your savings for and invested in something that's that's not as volatile you know i mean that for those uh, um well you know shorter term treasuries and shorter term bonds that currently you can get 5% or so on i mean that's not what i'm looking for for my whole portfolio but if i were saving a certain amount of money for uh equity on a home or send my kids to college and I knew it was going to be in a few years, I would be more likely to set aside, you know, to do, do something like that. Uh, but the major risk I would say for the long-term investor is you always have the risk that today's um, dividend or, or, you know, that, that you'll have some losses or that, or that rates yield rates will drop and that your fund that's now paying you, nine percent might drop and only pay you eight and a half percent i mean you, you this this is real this is why i set my goals i even though i've been earning 10 and 11 percent for the last couple of years i keep telling myself and readers that look this is special you know we've we've had because of you've had so much volatility in the market there have been fears of a recession that hasn't come yet maybe it will or not there have been discounts on on loans and bonds that a, a, a smart fund manager can buy bonds and loans at discounts, you know, when they're exist. And then they mature if they don't go bust and 98 percent of them don't. You buy something at 92 cents on the dollar and then they resell it or not resell it. It matures in a few years and the company pays off at par. You've got a nice capital gain there. So there have been a there's been a lot of that boosting returns lately as um, loans and bonds have been selling at bigger discounts than usual because of all the angst in the market. Now, so, you know, you have things that can influence, influence the size of your, of your cash flow over time. And so, yeah, don't, you can't fall in love with 10%. <laughs> and, and you have to realize that, hey, I might be compounding at 8%, you know, in five years or 10 years, but as long as you're compounding, it's still going to grow, you know. Uh, but yeah, the the fact that nothing is is assured and that rates from, you know, yields from funds aren't guaranteed, you know, that that can vary, um, and it has, but it hasn't affected the overall effectiveness of the of the strategy so far. All right, um, and. We get to start wrapping up here, unfortunately, but it's been a fascinating discussion. I'm curious, pre, pre, um, uh, 
you know, interest rates uh, getting hiked to where they are right now, back when we were sort of in a ZERP world, I'm just curious, what, what type of returns was your income factory portfolio returning? Um, well, I, yeah, I started, I get more and more, this became more and more my, my way of investing. I mean, I transitioned from a more traditional form of investing, but I'd right. say, but, but your book came out in, in early 2020. So, you know, right before everything went crazy. <laughs> that's right. I'd say back then I was talking more about eight to 9% as my more realistic target level of yields to that what I would have been happy to kind of for a lifetime of yields at eight or nine percent and just compounding them this getting 10 11 12 percent over the last couple of years has it's been great but I I keep trying to tell myself and my readers that you know we can't count on this forever but on the other hand I don't expect it to go back to a zero uh you know rate program great environment yeah so all um, i want to uh, say is you know no, yeah yeah, eight, eight, eight I, I, yeah. The, the, the long-term mortgage rate the 30-year mortgage rate average for the last 50 years was something like seven percent or so just to kind of keep that in mind keep it in perspective yeah so uh, yeah i just wanted to to, to point out that eight percent in a zerp world uh you know on the 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 fixed income side credit side not not so bad uh, I know a lot of people that'd be interested in that. And I, I just remember in 2022 when everybody's portfolio uh, was doing poorly because stocks and bonds were going down. I can't tell you how many people, Stephen, came to me and said, God, if I could just find a, a, a way to get 4% consistently going forward from here, I'll be happy. I don't need anything more than that, right? Just just something that I can sleep at night in and get a consistent 4%. Um, and you're you're offering something that, oh. I mean, no guarantees, but but has been performing at twice or better than that with the ability even, to sleep. That's right. And even a very, even a most conservative investor, if we were to, if I were to sit down and get rid of the, some of the things I own that are more aggressive, you could probably pretty much count on a seven or 8% return, you know, uh, yield, you know, indefinitely. Okay. All right. Well, look, um, Thank you for doing this. You've done a really great job in, in, in helping beginning to demystify the world of uh, of income generating assets for our viewers here. Um, you've definitely given something them to chew on. Like I said, the, the 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 structure of what you're offering here, I think to many people, you know, it sounds pretty compelling. Now, obviously, everybody got to do your own research. Um, an important part of that research could be reading your book. So, Stephen, if folks want to read your book, wh where can they get it? Oh well. They can get it. If I were one of these people that's interviewed all the time on CNBC, you know, I'd have a whole bunch of these on a bookshelf behind me all through the show. <laughs> but no, on Amazon, the Income Factory, uh, it, there it is. And uh, uh, so and go, to, go to Amazon or wherever they sell books. Before we yeah. turned on the camera, we were sort of talking about how um, solutions like yours don't get a lot of airtime on the traditional financial media um, because they're, they're they're not sexy, right? What what sells is the you know uh, the, the boom of the day. Which which stock just right. went up you know thirty percent yesterday because of some news, right? And also you know a lot of these media companies, their advertisers are big ETFs and they tend to be on the equity side and, and, you know, fixed income is sometimes like watching paint dry, 
But mm -hmm. if, if your horse finishes the race and that's all you need it to do to win, you know, that's as an investor, that's great. But as a, as a network trying to get people to tune in tomorrow for the next big soundbite, it, it, it's not super effective for that, right? Oh, absolutely right. And in, in fact, in my book, I spend the introduction and my favorite chapter, chapter two, is why do we invest? What makes us wealthy? And I talk about this, this uh, transition that's taken place. Back when people had, had pension plans and they didn't have to run their own money, they weren't watching TV nearly as much. But with a media that, that requires people to worry about growth and, and indexes and the sort of things that they focus on, yeah, you're not going to hear much about letting the paint dry with uh, boring income factory strategies, but um, I appreciate your interest in it. No, well, thanks. Well, it's I'm just reflecting our audience's interest in it. So um, for folks that have really enjoyed this conversation, whether they get your book or not, um, where else can they go to follow you and your work? Well, if, if they follow Seeking Alpha, I, I've been writing on Seeking Alpha for 20 years. That's a a worldwide uh, uh, website focused on investing. It's got millions of readers and actually thousands of, of writers, contributors. And I became one 20, some, 20 years ago or so. And then a few years ago, they invited some of the more popular writers, I guess, to set up separate investment subscription services that they, that they host on Seeking Alpha. So I took by then I'd written my income factory book. So I created a service inside the income factory. So people can read public articles of mine on Seeking Alpha, or they can take the next step and investigate my inside the in income factory service. Try, you know, there's a free trial available and all that. All right, it's great. So if they go to Seeking Alpha and they type in your name, oh, they'll Stephen find Bavaria, they'll find if you. They, okay. They Google they google steven bavaria they'll find all this stuff yeah okay great and steven um we'll put links to your book and your your free and your your premium uh substack uh, sorry uh seeking alpha uh, page <laughs> right. uh, in the description below this video so folks if you want to get just direct one click access to that you'll find it there um Thank you. all right so uh steven I've, I've got one last question for you um and I'll give you about a minute to chew on it because I got to do some housekeeping first. And folks, you're going to want to hear the housekeeping because there's some some interesting resources for you there. Um, but the question is going to be, what's we've been talking all about money uh, and financial returns in this discussion, but what's one non-money related investment that you would encourage folks to consider adopting in their lives? Real quick before we get to that, folks, if you've enjoyed having Stephen uh, on here, you know, we, time got short. Um, there's still a lot I'd love to talk to him about. If you'd like to have him back on the program again in the future to elaborate on income investing, please let him know by hitting the like button then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Um, just a reminder that the um, uh, Thoughtful Money Spring Conference is coming up very fast now, and that lowest early bird price discount is still being offered, but that's going to go away at the end of the month, which is coming up quickly. So don't delay anymore. Uh, if you're interested in registering for the conference, do it now to lock in that lowest price. And if you're a premium subscriber to our Substack, you get $50 off that lowest early bird price. Um, another benefit that premium subscribers of the Substack are going to get is um, I wrote a piece a couple of years ago, um, basically just sort of, it's a primer on income investing. And it just basically talks about all the, 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 the major common 
assets, many of which uh, Stephen talked about here, but there are others that we didn't have a chance to get into. Um, so uh, that primer just basically sort of explains what they all are. Um, I know we used a lot of terminology in this discussion that maybe not everybody knows. Uh, that primer does a, does a good job of, of sort of explaining what each of those things are. Um, I'll be sending that after this interview to all my premium uh, subscribers on Substack. So uh, if you're interested in getting that as well and you're not yet a premium subscriber, consider upgrading. It's only 15 bucks a month, folks. Um, and you'll get uh, that $50 discount to the conference I just mentioned, plus that um, free primer uh, or that primer on, on income investing. And of course, all the other benefits that you get for signing up for Substack, like my notes to all these interviews and, and uh, all, all the other benefits that the subscribers get. Um, all right. Um, last, I just want to underscore again, um, you know, none of what was said in here was, was personal financial advice. But I think for a lot of people, uh, dealing with credit and fixed income instruments, um, it's a little bit more challenging initially, uh, just because um, it's a little bit more mathy for people. And a lot of people get scared by that. Um, and a lot of people just don't have experience uh, investing in these instruments. And so, uh, as I do every week, highly recommend that unless you're an experienced DIY person yourself, um, that you work under the, the guidance of a good financial advisor, professional financial advisor, who takes into account and understands and appreciates everything that Stephen and I talked about here. If you've got a good one who can do that for you, great, stick with them. But if you don't, or you'd like to uh, get input from one who does, consider talking to one of the financial advisors that um, Helpful Money endorses, uh, these consultations that you can have with them, they're totally free. Uh, to, sign one up, uh, to sign up for one, just go to thoughtfulmoney.com, fill out the short form there. But like I said, they don't cost you anything. Uh, there's no commitment to work with these guys. It's just a free public service they offer to help as many people as po possible position as prudently as possible in building their wealth going forward. All right. Thanks for hanging in there, Stephen. We're now here at that last question. What's one non-money related investment you'd encourage folks to consider? Well, it may sound fairly perfunctory to a lot of people, but I'd say, just to build up to the answer a little bit, I find I know so much more now, and I'm in my mid-70s, I know so much more now than I ever did years ago, and I wish you know, that I'd known it sooner, but I didn't. And so now one of my goals, whether it's from an investing point of view or just living, is to try to live as long as I can and be healthy while I'm doing it so I can apply all these lessons that I've been learning for the last 70 years, some of them really the hard way. And and I, I said, you know, I come from good Italian stock, I guess, where my grandfather Giuseppe came over on a wooden ship in 1901 as a teenager and worked in the wow. slate quarries and managed to live to be 96. My dad went through the Second World War, was at Iwo Jima, you know, was married 50, men, 50 odd years, some of them not so odd, and um, lived in 96 too. So I'm hoping, I, I've got the genes and I'm hoping I can do it and continue to make some kind of a useful contribution and enjoy myself you know, for the next 20 years. So it all depends on, you know, just staying healthy and keeping your mind wide open to new ideas and, and everything. So I would say that's the most important thing. And if you're younger than I am, and most of you probably are, start working on it now. I, I We live in a 55 and over community and I see a lot of my neighbors and others, some of whom are younger than me. And 
I don't want to pass judgment, but I wish I, I think some of them wish they had started earlier, you know, taking care of themselves. And so that's the most important thing you can do. Take care of yourselves physically, mentally, spiritually, however you can, and it'll help your investing and your living, I think. Great point. Um, folks know that I talk about this topic a lot here, um, but in, invest in your functional health, both physically, mentally, uh, spiritually, as you said, so that just like the horses in your analogy, you actually finish the race, right? <laughs> what good is building up this whole income engine if you, uh, if you, if you clock out halfway through the race because you didn't take good enough care of yourself? Great. All right. Well, look, um, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for coming on, introducing, well, explaining all these instruments for us, um, demystifying it for us, but also presenting your framework that I think a lot of people are going to find uh, really interesting. And I love bringing on practical, actionable ideas like this. And you've done that in spades here, Stephen. Uh, I really look forward to having you back on the program again at some point in the future. Um, but thanks so much for giving us so much time and everybody else. Thanks so much for watching. My pleasure. Thank you.